evening to you. Second Kings chapter 14, our journey through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. And if you just get their attention, they'll be happy to get one into your hands so that you can not only hear the word, but also read along with us. Just as that is occurring, I want to remind you of a couple of announcements from this morning. The Christmas program, just a couple of weeks away. Uh, this year is entitled Emmanuel, God with us. An evening of music and media focusing on Jesus' birth. Performances will be held on uh, Saturday, December 18th. And then uh, two weeks from tonight, Sunday, December 19th, 6 p.m. each night. And uh, admission is free. All of the kids and grandkids and everybody's in the room all together on that night. And so you can pick up a flyer in the fellowship hall with more details, not only for you attending that evening. The Lord is always because we just don't do this and say, oh, it's Christmas time. Let's just, uh, you know, put something together for the sake of putting something together. We only do it if we feel like God is putting something together. And uh, when he has that, he's always pleased to bless it. So we'll look forward to a couple of wonderful nights in him. You won't want to miss it, but also a great opportunity to invite others to come and be exposed to uh, the gospel and, uh, and the true meaning of, of Christmas on those nights. And so a chance also uh, to invite uh, someone. Also remember that Franz and Monica... Uh, are, have a table out after the fellow, uh, in the fellowship hall after the service tonight as they're going to be heading to serve the Lord in New Zealand. So a chance to get uh, information related to what's on their heart and to become a part of it in a lot of different ways. And so avail yourself of that. Also, the airport neighborhood uh, workday is this coming Saturday at Legion Park from 9.30 a.m. to 2 p.m., and the volunteers will want to bring sturdy leather work gloves, rakes and shovels. Helpers will be assembling uh, sprinkler pipes, backfilling trenches related to a soccer field that's gone on in the neighborhood. The Neighborhood Association has asked for help in putting that in. It's a neighborhood that's, that's uh, wanting to uh, lead in that neighborhood and to, to solve problems in that neighborhood. And, and become something a little bit better than what it has been. And so it's a great chance to just come alongside those that are taking that kind of a step in our community, loving our neighbor as ourself. And uh, so uh, there'll also be trash and brush removal. If you're interested in serving in this way, please visit the table in the fellowship hall after the service for a map and more uh, information. All right. Okay. Second Kings Chapter 14, we have last time we studied the death of Elisha during the reign of Joash, also known as Jehoash in Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And then now our focus goes to the south, to Judah. And in the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet not like uh, his father David, not with that kind of completeness. He did everything as his father Joash had done. And here's the exception in verse 4. However, 
The high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And so what he did is he encouraged the worship of the Lord at the temple as the law of Moses uh, required. But he did not go so far as to demand that the people of the land cease their worship uh, up on the various uh, mountaintops around Israel. God's law had declared that if you're going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, you couldn't do it on your own in some field somewhere, somewhere on a mountaintop somewhere. That was to all be done through the priests at the tabernacle or at the temple. And they were just basically rearranging religion around their convenience. And uh, it could very well be that they were worshiping the Lord, but doing it on their terms Or it might have been that they were engaged in uh, the worship of idols up on those uh, mountaintops as well. But uh, uh, Amaziah should have put his foot down and said, as long as I'm king, I've only got 29 years. We know that he didn't know that. But as far as that goes, when I'm not only going to direct you in the positive to worship the Lord, but I'm going to shut the door and and put an end to this idolatry that's going on or this disobedience to the Lord. The implication is, by virtue of it being mentioned, is that God would have honored it if he'd have done it. He had the ability to do that. He had the ability for his legacy in the book forever and ever to not have a however attached to it. It's one of the things that I love about these historical books. It's funny, you know, we think we're so complicated as human beings. I mean, we've got more labels to put on a human being than, you know, isn't America amazing? So we got this. We just think we're the most complicated, most this, most that. And, and we're the most hyphenated culture in the whole world. And when God looks at a human being, he can he can encapsulate any one of our lives in two sentences. We were either a saint or an ain't in terms of salvation. And then you get and that's that's after J. Vernon McGee. And then if you once you get past that, it's either well done, thou good and faithful servant enter in the joy of the Lord or you don't hear that. It's not real complicated. So he takes all these lives, 29 years, 52 years, uh, 10 years, six months, all these things. And he just looks at a life and he says, I don't care how much pasta you ate, how much pizza you ate. I don't care how many titles you held in life. I can encapsulate your life in one sentence. You either did that which is right in the eyes of the Lord or you didn't do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. And so he had a chance and it always exhorts me. I don't want to however about my life. Not just publicly, but in the privacy of my life, that God would say he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. However, I don't want a however associated with with my legacy. And I know that you don't even. That's one of the challenges, beautiful, healthy challenge of the scriptures from these historical books. Let's not aim for a B plus. Let's aim for the A in this Christian life. Now, it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king, and his father was murdered, as assassinated, as we saw back in chapter 12. And so he executed those that conducted the murder, but he didn't execute the children of the murders. 
And he did this in accordance with the book of the law of Moses in which the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children's sins, nor shall the children be put to death for their father's sins, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. In the ancient culture, when you you killed the father, I'm talking about pagan culture, you killed the father and you killed all the kids because you just you couldn't run the risk that one of them would become your enemy and then try and kill you. But here it is, and there's some risk involved with him taking this step to obey the word of God. He obeyed the word of God, says, all right, I'm going to stay within those boundaries and then and then trust the complications that occur related to my obedience to the Lord. And so uh, God blessed him in his uh, in his reign and and uh, because of his obedience uh, to the Lord. Uh, God gave him victory over the Edomites, and he entered into a couple of battles with the Edomites, we find out in Second Chronicles. And then one of these battles, he killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, an area down south of the Dead Sea. And he took Selah by war and renamed it uh, Jokthiel to this day. This is uh, 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 the educated guesses in terms of the identity of this city that was taken and then renamed as the modern uh, day city of Petra, the rock city of Petra which is in Jordan today. So he, he experiences this uh, wonderful defeat of uh, the Edomites, and uh, he renames their, the capital associated with, uh, uh, with them at that time. And uh, this war with Edom is a little bit, again, more greatly described in, in Second Chronicles. Uh, he does a very foolish thing after defeating the Edomites, in that he then uh, takes their gods or their idols and he brings them back to worship in Israel. See, this is what our capacity, I don't say this about you, our capacity for self-deception is so strong that if we didn't have the Bible, the mirror of the word to put up and say, mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Not you, buddy, you better stay close to Christ. But, I mean, we could just fool ourselves into all kinds of things. Why would you adopt the gods of a people who could not defend the people that you just defeated? Why would you cash in the lesser for the greater? And yet that's exactly what he does. So God gives him this, this victory, and he responds very, very poorly to it. And, uh, but he gets lifted up in pride over uh, beating the Edomites in battle. And so he sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoiahaz, the son of Jehu, was at, who was at the time the king of Israel. And he said to him, this was the message, come, let us face one another in battle. So he calls them out. He wants to go. This is a declaration of war with his brethren in the north uh, in, in the kingdom of, uh, of Israel. The problem here is that Jehoash's forces, these were very, very seasoned warriors. They had just come off of a series of victories with one of the dominant powers in the region at that time, Syria. So it's like here you have uh, Amaziah, who's basically in single A baseball, and he's tr- he wants to take on the, Yan- the Giants. I almost said Yankees, didn't I? It's a really bad move. He wanted to take on the A's of the Giants. 
So he's just completely outclassed in what he's doing. But he's so lifted up in pride here that this is this is what uh, what he does, this declaration of war. Now, this uh, uh, king, uh, Jehoash in in the north, he's he's uh, very he gives him some wise wise counsel. He sent then a responding message to Amaziah, the king of Judah, saying the thistle that was in Lebanon went to the sea, went to the sea, sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my son as wife. So he's likening Amaziah to a thistle. Now, a thistle is like a milkweed. It's a, it's a weed. It's a little, it, it's, it's got thorns and stickers on it. Everybody hated it. But, and then, and then Joash is likening himself to this great cedar. And in essence, he's telling him, you're out of your league. You're just like a weed who's caught, you're wanting to fight a cedar. You have no chance here. And then, and then he brings in, in, in essence, uh, you're, you come unto me and, like you're saying, give your daughter to my son as wife. If I came to you and I said, give your daughter to my son as wife, it was communicating that I considered both of our families to be equal, both of us to be equal. And so this is the intimation that he's making that we're equal and the Jehoash is going to let him know that we really aren't. And so he said uh, in putting out this uh, illustration, then a wild beast was just kind of making its way through Lebanon, passed by and uh, trampled the thistle, just squashed it right on the spot. And you have indeed defeated Edom. Your heart has lifted you up. You're lifted up in pride because of your defeat of the Edomites. Glory in your little victory and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? In essence, he said, listen, why don't you and the missus go out and go out to dinner, have a nice Italian meal. Have some pasta, have a nice salad, have some Spumoni ice cream, some good Italian coffee. Go home and call it a great day. It's been wonderful. Don't expand on what you're, you're, you're trying to, to do here. Don't go through on what it is you're threatening me to do with, because he says, why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall? And I'll tell you, pride can really lead us into conflicts that we should never, ever be involved in and then accompanying defeat. And uh, it causes us, and I think we have to be very careful. I think any time you walk with the Lord for a while, and then no matter how God is using us, however he's called us to use us, whether, you know, we're witnessing to someone and they accept the Lord, or maybe they ask a lot of questions and we knew the answer to all those questions right on the spot, and they didn't have to tell them to meet us here at 7.30 next week with the answers. However it is that God might use us, there is a tendency after being used uh, to get lifted up in pride. And we really become vulnerable then to thinking that we know everything about everything and we can stick our nose into everybody's business. And it's a good way uh, to get our feet stomped on. And so 
I think that after we walk with the Lord for a while, one of the things that happens to us is we can walk away from different situations and say, God, that was amazing. You were amazing. You used me in that situation. You are too much. I can't believe it. Now, God, I know myself well enough that I'm going to get way lifted up in pride on this thing, and I'm probably going to stick my nose into somebody's business that I shouldn't, and, and I'm going to get into trouble. And it's a good prayer, and it's a good thing to know about us. But he's not going to listen to it. And so Amaziah would not heed, and therefore Jehoash... He, he, he fought against the king. And so Jehoash, king of Israel, he went out. So he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. And then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. And he went uh, to uh, Jerusalem. And he proceeded to break down the outer defense wall of Jerusalem in the north, uh, northern part, the most vulnerable part, by the way, uh, from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. That's 200 yards. And for those of you who have been to Israel, uh, Jerusalem was much smaller at that time and uh, involving the city of David and the Temple Mount and that, that, uh, that much of things. So to open up a 200-yard opening in their outer defense of their wall, that left them considerably vulnerable as a result. And so uh, he, was, he was knocking not only the king but uh, Israel down, setting them back a few years in terms of thinking about attacking again. And then he proceeded to take all of the gold and silver, all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, and he took hostages and he returned to Samaria. So he stripped uh, Judah of its wealth, got to pay for the battle, got to pay for the war. These are the spoils. And so he went in and he stripped that wealth away. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did, his might and how he fought with Amaziah, uh, king of Judah, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And so Jehoash rested with his fathers, was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, and then uh, uh, Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. Now, following the defeat of Amaziah, uh, Jehoash took the king captive and held him captive for the remainder of his reign. When he died, he then released Amaziah to go back to Judah, where he was once again restored to be the king, kind of a co-regency uh, with his son. And so Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, he lived 15 years uh, after the death of Jehoash, the son of Jehoiahaz, king of Israel. So he was restored into the position of of king for an additional 50 years, 15 years after the captivity. Now, the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. And then they brought him on horses, and they buried, uh, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David, given a royal uh, burial. And so he came back following uh, being held captive by the king of Israel. He reigned for 15 years. 
And then he must have had some very, very powerful enemies, because even when he attempted to flee, they hunted him down to assassinate him. Could very well be that they were upset with him leading them into the folly of that battle with Israel that ended up with the land being stripped of their wealth. They could have also been upset with him for introducing the idolatry from the Edomites uh, into the national life of Israel. We don't know for sure, but he had powerful enemies who struck him down. And all the people of Judah then took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, uh, Amaziah. And he built Elath and restored it to Judah after the, uh, after the king rested with his fathers. And so the building of Elath must have been the significant event of his reign, and thus it's mentioned. In the 15th year, and I think it's good for us to know here as we get into verse 23, the ministries of Isaiah and Amos and Hosea begin at that, this point in the Old Testament history. So in the reading of those uh, prophecies, you get a sense for what was going on in Israel and Judah at this time, a more, uh, more complete picture. So in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, uh, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, now we go to the north, he became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. That's a very, very long reign. And so when someone's going to reign for 41 years, I mean, at least every two years we get to vote around here, or every four years. So here you've got this thing where you've got a king for 41 years, and all you can hope for is that he'd be a good king. But he wasn't a good king. Verse 24, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. So 41 years is a long time. Be essentially, if you were born at the, that time, you could have your entire adult life be under the reign of, of this uh, evil man. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word uh, of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of uh, Amittiah, the prophet who was from gath Hefer. And so, uh, though he was a wicked king, he was uh, uh, very, very savvy politically and uh, very, very skilled militarily. And he uh, uh, enlarged, and it was really God's grace, he enlarged the boundaries of Israel uh, back to what they had been in the north uh, under David and under Solomon. They had never known this kind of expansion since David and since Solomon. It wasn't because uh, they deserved it at all, but because God just had grace on them and pity on them, gave them victory over their enemies in the hope that they would then repent of their sin and, and turn to the Lord, which uh, they never did. Now, apparently, these victories uh, that uh, resulted in the restoration of this territory back into Israel, these things were prophesied uh, to Jeroboam by Jonah, and this is none other than Jonah the prophet. 
So Jonah, the prophet, we know nothing about the prophecy except for here had prophesied that God is going to give you these victories and, uh, and, and to proceed in battle. And we can only imagine, as we're familiar with the Old Testament, that God then gave the warning or the call to repent and to turn to him and walk with him instead of all of these false gods. And so uh, uh, here a little glimpse into the larger ministry of Jonah than the one that we're familiar with him and the great fish and all. Now, what is kind of fascinating with Jonah's name being mentioned here is that um, Jonah gives this prophecy to the king of Israel and they don't repent. <laughs> they don't repent. God gives a prophecy to Jonah to go to Assyria and announce in Nineveh 40 days and you're all dead. 40 days and then comes destruction. And here's this just totally pagan, no uh, history with the God of the Bible. They hear the message, not even a glimmer of hope in the message. And they all clothe themselves with sackcloth and ashes in the hope that God might notice it, turn from his judgment and be gracious to them, which is exactly what God did. And the fact that as dark a culture as the Assyrians were at that time in terms of religion and morally, the fact that they would turn at the preaching of Jonah and the fact that uh, here are God's people, Israel, they would not turn under a similar message. It was it, it just made them even more responsible for continuing in their sin. I mean, this group over here repents and this one doesn't. So who can squawk when the judgment comes and judgment is coming? For the Lord saw, this is the reason for his grace, that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. And whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. They were on the verge of being blotted out. So he stepped in and he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war, how he uh, recaptured for Israel from uh, from Damascus and Hamath, what had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And so Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel, a pretty lousy group of people, by the way. And then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. And so we come now uh, to chapter 15. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. So down to the south again to Judah. It's like playing a little bit of biblical pong. North to the south, south to the north. He was 16 years old when he became uh, king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Jechaliah of Jerusalem. Now, he, this king that is referred to as Azariah here is also known and more commonly known as Uzziah, one of the great kings of Judah. And Uzziah is a form of the name Azariah. And so that's why it's used in, uh, in, in interchanged with one another in the biblical record. So this guy reigns for 50 
two years in Jerusalem. Again, that's a very long time. That would be, for many people, their entire life would have been lived under the reign of this, this one man. And then praise the Lord, verse 3. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And so even he, a great king that he was, he still had this uh, except. Now, his reign is more thoroughly described in Second Chronicles, which we'll study when uh, when we get there. But it's good to know that he brought a tremendous material prosperity to the southern kingdom of Judah. He brought a prosperity they had not known since the time of Solomon. Give you an idea of of how great the, the material prosperity uh, was in addition to the godly tone that he, he set uh, for the nation. God gave him one military victory after another, after another. His army was very, very large, very well trained, and uh, he had to have a good military in those days, and uh, very, very well equipped. He was a great builder. He believed in building projects, the uh, government doing something that couldn't be done individually, and, and he established those kinds of things. He expanded Judah's territory greatly. And one of the things that's funny, isn't it, how uh, the Bible's record of some of these characters, you think, okay, here's his office as a king, and here's his office as a builder, and here's his office as a general and all. And then the Lord lets us know he liked the soil, He's a gardener. He liked to farm. He liked to ranch. He liked what came out of the soil. Kind of reminds me of uh, Ariel Sharon, who is, was one of the great generals in recent history in Israel. He lives to this day, but he's still in a coma from his stroke of several years ago. But so many of these guys in Israel's history, even in recent years, they were great generals. They were great politicians. They stood against the whole world and all. But as soon as they reached a point where they felt there was someone else that could take their place in this pivotal place, all they wanted to do was just go raise grapes or olives. Just the simple thing, the soil, the sun, the rain, the crop. Just that kind of a life. Now, I'm not saying it's not easy to be a farmer, but they, but they wanted out of that whole kind of thing. And it's kind of a refuge for them. And he was this kind of guy. I think, that uh, again, some of the insights that we get into uh, that period of time, again, Amos and Hosea. And this Uzziah is the, the king that's referenced by Isaiah when he was... Uh, called into his ministry as a prophet to Judah. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, a beautiful passage there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he goes on to describe the angels and the Lord commissioning him into public ministry. In other words, here's a 52-year reign of goodness and prosperity and blessing, and the whole nation is wondering, this is as good as it can get, the side of heaven, what's going to happen to us now? And then, and then while everybody is all, you know, rattled and wondering what it's going to be, and their focus is, for many of them in large part, has been upon a man, 
The Lord raises Isaiah's focus above all of the physical circumstances and puts it upon him. And he received a vision of the Lord and was commissioned at that time. And so, so much is happening around uh, these uh, historical events and these, these historical uh, books. And then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. And so he dwelt in an isolated house. Very late in his uh, life and in his ministry, after having God bless him and anything he put his hand to, God blessed him because he walked with the Lord and he had a concern for the things of the Lord. But later on in his life, he got lifted up in pride and he wasn't content just to be the king. Now he wanted to take over the role of the priest. So one day he goes to the temple and he decides that he's going to offer incense to God, which was only allowed according to the law of Moses for the high priest to do. And as he's about to do it, and God blessed the priesthood at that time, no matter how powerful or how popular this man was, they stood up against him to a man and told him, you can't do this. This is only for the priest to do. And he would not regard the warning of man godly man, and he pushed his way through them, and so God then smote him with leprosy, which made him unclean. Not only unclean for offering incense unto God, but unclean to ever come to the temple once again. And so he smote him with leprosy late in his life, and leprosy is an amazing symbol of sin, but it's an amazing symbol of pride also, in that one of the things that pride does is it ends up isolating us in life. And because he had leprosy, he, he uh, no longer could mingle with the regular population. He was put into kind of a, obviously a very nice situation, but he was a leper. He couldn't be out among the people anymore. And so he had to rule the southern kingdom of Judah in a co-regency with his son. And so again, we see the warning of pride after being used by God, being blessed by God. Isn't it? It's just something how close we have to stay with God. Not, you know, it's. It's I think most of us would agree that it's far more easy to stay close to God and dependent upon God and keep our heads screwed on straight when everything is hard. Everything is difficult. We have no margins except for God himself. And then it's much harder when you're being blessed in every direction. It's so easy then to get lifted up in pride, drift from the Lord and then proceed to lose everything. We may even be in the middle of that related to our own uh, nation and its pride. And so this is the danger. Another good warning as it relates uh, to pride, staying humble all the way through our life and through our ministry. Um, you know, someone has said that humility is made up of two ingredients. Um, I'll remember them in just a second. No, it's made up of honesty and a good memory. And that's that's the truth about our lives. If God wants to exalt us into any position, he knows our address. He knows how to touch our heart. He knows how to get us there. We don't need to huff or puff or blow any doors down or force our way through or or make some kind of problem through self-promotion or something like that. Uh, and, and put ourselves into a situation that we don't belong in. And so now not only do men have to resist this, but God has to resist this, and it always becomes a mess. And so 
promotion, the Bible says, comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from the east or the west or the north or the south. It comes uh, from him. And any promotion that we gain through our own flesh, it'll be a fleeting thing and people will be damaged. And uh, so I, I and I'm thankful. I've been I've been pastoring here for 25 years and uh, and I just, uh, you know, want to I'm just grateful very much for the leadership team in this church. We've had virtually in 25 years. I mean, they're follow, they're they're serving with a numbskull like me. I mean, admitted are way more talented, way more knowledgeable, way nicer, way everythinger than I am. And and yet it's been a very sweet, peaceful time. People knowing what God has called them to do, doing that and then not trying to create some kind of a war out of selfish ambition and and all that goes with that. So I pinch myself and I just say, thank you, Lord. And, and it makes me love uh, these men and women all the more. I'll find my place in just a moment. Then the Lord, again, verse five, struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. And so he dwelt in an isolated house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the royal house, uh, judging the people of the land. Now, the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And so Azariah rested with his fathers and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And then Jotham, his father, reigned in his place. And so he was buried in the royal tombs in appreciation for his life and his ministry. And in the the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, Reigned over Israel, so we go to the north now, in Samaria. He reigned for six months. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made all of Israel to sin. You got that down? If you don't commit that to memory in the course of, of this study, then you know, you've wasted it in, in some parts. So here he is. He reigns uh, for six months. And then Shalom, the king of Jabesh, uh, he uh, conspired against him, struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. And so he assassinated uh, Zechariah after a reign of six months. Now, the rest of the acts of Zechariah, indeed, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And this was the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Jehu concerning uh, or saying, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was now in the northern kingdom of Israel. At this point, we begin to see it uh, rapidly begin to destabilize and, and to fragment and unravel. And so uh, Zechariah, he reigns for six months. Shalom's going to reign for one month. Uh, Menahem is going to reign for ten years after him. Uh, Pekiah is going to reign for two years. And so you've got this quick transition of leadership, all of it bringing jarring transition to the nation, and, uh, and it's just decaying, and people are panicking, taking the law into their own hands, uh, concerned about the future of the nation and, and what they see as a future collapse of the nation. And so this assassination, this high turnover is, 
is uh, emblematic of, of the problems that they have. Now, Zechariah's death ended there in verse 12, the Jehu dynasty. And God had promised Jehu that he would have four generations. His dynasty would be made up of four kings in the history uh, of, of Israel. And uh, unfortunately, Jehu and his house proved unworthy of the opportunity that God gave them to lead Israel out of idolatry and out of wickedness. I mean, they had, here were four kings that had a chance to do it. God said, I'm going to give you an opportunity and your sons, and they completely wasted the opportunity. But God said, I'm going to, I'm going to honor it. I'm going to give you four chances in your bloodline. And then once uh, the, the death of Zechariah occurred, God's promise to Jehu was fulfilled, and now it was clear for him to pour his judgment out on Israel, which he uh, is very soon about to do. And Shalom, the son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month. Not a half month, a full month. That's a big deal in Judah at, that, at this time. That's the kind of instability. For Menahem, the son of uh, Gadi, went up from Tirzah, came to Samaria, and he struck Shalom, the king of Jabesh, in Samaria and killed him, and he reigned in his place. And so he looked at it and said, here is Shalom going up and killing Zechariah and taking over the throne. And, and we know from Josephus that that Menahem, he was the leader of Jeroboam's army, so he figured, hey, if anybody's going to follow Jeroboam, it ought to be the general. And so that's how he works the whole thing out in his mind. And so he, he assassinates the assassin and then reigns in his place and the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led. Indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And then from Terzah, Menahem attacked uh, Tifsha, all who were there uh, in and its territory, because they did not surrender. Therefore, he attacked it and all the women who were with child he ripped open. And so here is Tipsa. He goes uh, to it. They locked the gates of their city to him. They refused to recognize him. This assassin king as the king of Israel. He gets uh, upset over all of that. He not only conquers the city but, and, and destroys human life, but he does it to such a degree that he kills every pregnant woman in the city, opens up their bellies, and then and in the ancient world they would take and uh, carry around the babies on the end of their spears, on the end of their swords. What man is capable of from Adam and Eve once we move away from God and his word? We don't want to know. We already know in our lifetimes and in our history all around the world. How many tens of millions of people, innocent people, have been slaughtered because of some Demonic nutcase has gotten a hold of power. And so we go through books like this, and sometimes it can be a little bit tedious for some people, and I recognize that, but all the same mistakes are being made all around the world today. 
in what is on the other side of the rejection of the only sane one in this world, and that is the God of the Bible, is horrifying. You don't remove the influence of God and the Word of God from this world and leave a vacuum. It gets filled with something, and that something is always inferior and very often demonic. And so you read these kind of passages and you think, do we have to know, does it have to be that graphic, except it's happening all around the world to people, even today. And in the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel and reigned ten years in Samaria. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. And then Pul, king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver. That's 37 tons of silver. I don't know what silver is trading at at the moment. But I know that anything that is not in U.S., uh, anything other than U.S. dollars is going up like crazy. I know what gold is somewhere. What is it now? 14 or 12? Tell me somebody. 14? So highest in history uh, related to things. A little economics here. I don't know what the economy is going to do any more than the economists know what they're going to do. You know, they say if you laid a thousand economists from one end to the other, they'd all be a lot more comfortable. Nobody knows really what they're, <laughs> there's going to be deflation. Is it going to be inflation? They keep our eyes on the Lord and walk with the Lord. And, and so, but, but here, I mean, this is 37 tons of silver. Uh, again, the gold has all been stripped away probably in previous times. And, uh, this was given by Menahem to Pul, uh, probably for a couple of reasons. Number one, as we'll see in just a moment, uh, number one, to gain uh, Assyria, which was at this point in time the ascending power. Syria itself is uh, descending in terms of its influence. So he wants to get on the right side of Assyria. He also recognizes that his reign is a little bit iffy, and he wants to have the endorsement of uh, of the king of Assyria endorsing his reign to bring stability uh, to his claim to be the king there in the land. And so he willingly becomes a vassal of Assyria at this point in time to accomplish those ends. And so Menahem, he exacted the money uh, from Israel the way it's always done through history. It's as current as today's news from all the very wealthy, from each man 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. And so the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now, it's interesting, Assyria is ultimately going to conquer um, the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah will be conquered by the Babylonians who will follow the Assyrians. And so Assyria, Pul had kind of a three-pronged uh, means of taking over the world. And he took over the ancient world in that part of the world. Number one, he would go in and he would make vassals of the, the surrounding nations where they would be tied to him on the basis of treaties or money or this, this kind of thing. 
Then his second phase of kind of his methodology was then to conquer them militarily. And the third phase was then to deport the native population to another part of the kingdom and then bring another population from a far part of the kingdom and put them in uh, in this other part of the kingdom in order to keep the kingdom destabilized and less likely to rebel against him. And so here is Menahem. And he is inviting uh, the king of Assyria, uh, essentially making it easy for him to enact phase one of of the progression. Now, the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And so Menahem rested with his fathers and then uh, uh, This guy, his son, he reigned in his place. Uh, I had it down earlier. So, uh, uh, and so he, in the, in the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, he, this guy, the son of Menahem, he became king over Israel in Samaria. He reigned for two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made uh, all of Israel to sin. And thankfully, he's only in three verses, so we can leave his name before. Then Pekah, this, uh, this I understand. Break the name down to two syllables, and you got a deal. So Pekah, the son of Remaliah, an officer uh, of his, conspired against him, killed him in Samaria, in the citadel of the king's house, along with Argob and uh, Arya, and with him were 50 men of Gilead, and he killed Pekiah and uh, reigned in his place. And so here we see an assassination occurring in the very citadel of the king's house. That's the safest place of the palace. In other words, there's no safe place even for a king to be protected from murder. Again, the whole society is unraveling. Now, the rest of the acts of uh, Pekahiah and all that he did, indeed, they are all, uh, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the King, uh, Kings of Israel. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, became king over Israel. So up in the north still, he reigned 20 years and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart uh, from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. And in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and he took uh, Ijon, Beth, uh, Abel, Beth, Maacah, uh, Janoah, uh, Kedesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. So now we see the military conquest phase two of the Assyrians' uh, invasion of Israel. And so this is a, a dramatic uh, loss of land now to the Assyrians. And then uh, Hashia, the son of Elah, he led a conspiracy against Pekah the son of Remaliah, and struck and killed him. So he reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, indeed, uh, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the second year of Pekah, the son of uh, Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, so we go to the south now, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, he began to reign. 
And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So you take these 25 years and you put them on the 52 years and you got 77 years. And that was a good one two combination for Judah. And it's one of the reasons that they didn't fall into captivity uh, as quickly as the southern kingdom, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel did, because they did have uh, eight good kings in their history. And so he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now, the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And in those days, the Lord began to send uh, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. And uh, so Jotham rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Now, Pekah, the northern the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, one of the reasons that he was uh, uh, Israel was invaded by the Assyrians is Pekah had a very, very strong uh, anti-Assyrian bent not the, not the people, but he could see that Assyria was becoming a dominant uh, empire. And he tried to put together a, um, a, a covenant of nations, including Syria, Israel, and others, to kind of on the west to blunt this expansion of Assyria. And uh, so when, when word got to Assyria that this guy's trying to make trouble against your plans, that's why they shot an army over there quick and, uh, and defeated them decisively. Pekah and Rezin, who was the king of Assyria, uh, or Syria at the time, they come now uh, to uh, Jotham here in the south, and they try and get him to join their confederation against Assyria. He doesn't feel a compelling reason. He doesn't feel threatened by Assyria at all, for whatever reason, refuses to uh, join uh, their uh, little confederation, and so they're going to end up attacking him on the basis of that a little bit later. But we'll stop there tonight and pick it up in uh, chapter uh, 16 uh, next time. So uh, there it is. I mean, it's uh, history is a um, <laughs> it's a it's a funny thing. Uh, it's fairly depressing. As a matter of fact, I, I don't know why, but and I have very little discretionary time, but I do like to spend some of that time reading and I almost exclusively read history and uh, it all of it just simply confirms the Bible. Everything in the whole world, everything in the world testifies to the truth of God's word. It's all teaches the same thing. God is true, and you better believe what he has to say, because it always has the final say on everything in the world. And that's a great lesson to be learned. So I forget, you know, they, you can pick up these statistics in these different books and all. Some of you might have heard it and know the answer to it, because you've got a better memory for numbers. But they talk about man's history for the last several thousand years or whatever, and, you're, and we're talking about, you know, something like, 
100 to 300 years of pure peace in the world. Probably more like 100 where there isn't a major conflict going on somewhere in the world. And so this is the world that we live in. And and I think it's good for us again. And, and I'm not I'm not trying to beat anybody or anything uh, like this related to it. But. The nation that we live in and the world that we live in, it, all the same mistakes are being made. And I mean, you you really do get the sense that anything that you and I can do on an individual level is just rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, except that we know that human history is in the hands of God and we are on the right side of God and his promises are going to be yea and amen toward us. But all the things that are unraveling that we see in front of us, these things are not about economies and about this and about that and all. These are moral problems. These are spiritual problems. This is why we are the way that we are. And, and so you see this continued drift away from God, from his word, from his standards, from his definitions of right and wrong. And the world gets scarier when you do that. It becomes more uncertain when you do that. And the first step in that, and the Lord's going to come back. We may not be able to halt anything. But we are called to be salt and light in, in this world. And the first key to all of this, to being an influence for God and maybe having a the greatest revival in human history in our nation and the whole wide world. I don't care where it happens, as long as it happens, is we ought to know history. We ought to know history and we ought to know Bible history. We ought to know why nations collapse beyond the reasons that are given on the Internet and the reasons that are given in best-selling books and the reasons that are given in newspapers. But the real reasons behind the fall of, of even great and godly nations. And we're only going to get that from the Bible. And so tonight, what we do, we look at this thing, we look at the world around us, and we realize that what the core problem is, and the core problem is, is a spiritual problem. It's a moral problem. That's why when I pick up my newspaper, or I go online and I look at the headlines and what is it, the economy, the job, the job, the job, the job, the job, the job. And I hate being where we are right now. And I hate people like us not having jobs because people in power made the stupidest decisions you can make. You, you couldn't invent dumb and be dumber than the decisions that have been made. And I say it with all due respect to the office that they hold. It, but it's just terrible that common individual people like us are the ones that bear the brunt of, of this kind of thing. But they can that economy can turn around in one year or in six weeks or two weeks or whatever. And that thing can hum again. And this thing is going to blow up even bigger because morally we're not changing. Spiritually, we're not changing. And if that turnaround comes of a material nature before the people of this nation are humbled and broken and turned back to God, then it's going to be even harder to get their attention the next time. And that goes for the whole world. I speak of our nation in this way because we have a blessing that most of the world doesn't have and that we have a Bible foundation to our nation. We sin against light. We sin against privilege that most of the rest of the world would love to have the opportunity to sin against. Our sin is greater as a result of it. 
So when you look at things and the whole deal is, yeah, economy and this and they got to tweak this and they got to tweak that and this needs to happen. That's not what needs to happen in the big picture for real change to occur. Change needs to occur in people's hearts as it relates to God. And that begins with salvation, which is why we are here, because if nobody else was going to get saved, then all of us would be gone by now. And so it helps us just to understand that that the main thing, keeping the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is God and obedience to his word, being born again, pointing people to God, telling them about God. That's the future. That's lasting change. That's something solid for a human life, individual or nation to build upon. And it may not turn around and the Lord could come. Uh, tonight before all of us fall asleep and that would be great too. whatever happens in his will but the history to me is so very important because history teaches a lot of things that are quickly forgotten let's stand together and we'll pray the worship team come forward that'd be great as well So as we close tonight, as we pray, we look at these kings, boom, 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 one right after another. God encapsulates their lives in two sentences. We just ask ourselves tonight. It's a heavy passage. So it's, it's a heavy passage, and so it's intended to do some heavy things in our life. How would God encapsulate our life tonight? All honesty, but if we don't shout it out, of course. But in all honesty before the Lord, as we go home, before we go to sleep tonight, I just say, God, how would you encapsulate my life in the light of your word? Would there be an accept there? And how many things would follow that accept? And Lord, what do I have to do to change that so that all that will ever be said of me as he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? All that I'll ever hear is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a living book, that it never goes out of date, absolutely timeless, because the world is the same through all of the ages. The technology changes, the personalities change, the borders change, but man never changes. And it's the same lessons, it's the same mistakes, it's the same things that need to be learned. And we are thankful that we get to learn them by your Holy Spirit in reading your book and not learning them the hard way. And we pray, Lord, that these precious couple of chapters here in the middle of, of these, this history segment of the Old Testament would just do its full, beautiful, strong, powerful work in each one of our lives. We pray, Lord, for how simple things are for you, how clear you see things. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to develop that kind of clarity in our thinking and in our seeing, Lord, 
as we process this great big world and this city and our neighborhood and our families all around us. Lord, keep the main thing, the main thing in our lives. Keep us busy about your business, faithful to your business as we await your return. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.